until we escape the idea that you have to put you they have like a 10 point plan on paper that explains what an american is or what an englishman yeah. is or blah blah yeah. blah and once we once we've we've put these points down on paper so everyone can see them we follow the checklist and that's how no you like you said th- these have to be lived things they have to be embodied they have to be you know they have to exist in a way that is not just cold and calculated and programmed and that's hard work it's hard work to build community it takes real effort to weave that cultural fabric back together after it's been torn apart but that is the task going forward if if you want to escape this continued idea that we're just going to you know get a bunch of bean counters together and they're going to optimize something and that's yeah. going <laughs> to generate the best outcome you you have to go to a different way of thinking and it's really hard for modern people people it's very difficult for us to not just scoff at the at, at many people you know you bring up spangler you bring up a vol- you bring up people who will invoke this metaphysical idea they they say oh well this isn't proper at all this doesn't break down into 10 little neat compartments that i can put on a cue card it's like no that's why it works that's the beauty of it and until you can understand that until you can understand the necessity of embodying that you're always going to be trapped in this continued disintegration of identity and purpose in your culture so today we're talking with the great oren mcintyre he's a columnist and host at the conservative network the blaze we talk about true american being being embodied and anti-constitutional folk ethos and sacred being the counter to the modernist calculator mindset his work process craft and personal practices that have helped him in his life and his work hope you enjoy it people on our side mainstreaming of these ideas that's very exciting i think um, how have you found dealing with the blaze and are they open to you having all these people like yavin they just they're saying you have who you like on no gatekeeping Nope, I've had no problem there. I've had all the guests on I normally would have had. I've had all the discussions that I normally would have had. So it's been really great. It's I I was surprised as anyone to get the the opportunity. But uh, like you said, it's it's it does feel like we're in a different time. There are a lot of people, you know, that they, they just had Lomez writing over at first things. You know, you have these complete anons, you know, uh, suddenly showing up in very prestigious and mainstream uh, and influential places so it's definitely a whole a whole new world right now yeah i i've thought about the anon pe- people is it in england back in long ago the power or or the there was this rural lords had this independent wealth which allowed them to sort of aristocrats but they were eccentrics right they were strange people they were outside the system they weren't in the house of lords but they had this sort of they had their own principalities uh, what it seems like now, this anon phenomena, and the reason why I defend it so much against people like Peterson that attack it, is that it allows these rural lords to emerge, people that just have the uh, merit of the of the ideas, right? Because obviously the rural lords had people had their own wealth to that's their independence, right? But they've got the anonymity; they're kind of populist rural lords, so it allows this the great ideas to to rise, right? Um, and that's that's uh, exciting because it gives a pathway for people. And raw egg nationalist is another one that's showing that a uh, going on Tucker. It's offering a pathway for people that don't have that kind of resources to rise pop as a populist, um, and and have that uh, insulation. Yeah, 
Yeah, and on Twitter is a strictly meritorious situation, right? There, you don't have credentials, you don't have any kind of outside clout, you don't have, you can't even, you know, post a good-looking pic if you're very attractive. There, there's, there's nothing but your ability, you know, to to kind of post and overcome and build an audience. And so it really does just give you the best because, and, and you can see how angry it makes kind of the old blue check mafia, right? They're, they're, they're seething that, that Elon <laughs> has broken their, yeah. uh, their monopoly on credibility and reach in those, in those situations. And it, it's a real, it's a real problem for them, but it is, it is especially for the right, which has been so long suppressed and had such a difficult time forming an intellectual vanguard, the ability of people to kind of climb on their own merit, share their ideas, build uh, a audience without having to go through the the normal gatekeeping really means that that people who deserve it are, are making big waves. And like I said, you're seeing it with guys who just are still pure, pure anons like Rodig Nationalist or Lomez breaking into to huge platforms. I think that's what's so great. Or oh, the next step, actually, I think, is defeating this credentialism, defeating this the weight that a Harvard has. We need our guys to stop because uh, you've got people like Daily Wire, who I think are complete managed opposition. They're not good for us. Uh, they're a distraction, uh, and they still like the New York Times. They want to have the New York Times bestseller. They want to win Oscars still, right? They're a, they're not a real. Uh, they're not a real alternative. They're not a real parallel economy, right? We need to defeat the credentialism. And you can see that with the passage prize. That is, okay, building institutions. But I do think we also need to think about, okay, uh, we need to get... I just had D- Jay Dyer on, and we were talking about, okay, sort of counterintelligence, because eventually they're going to try to take over the new institutions we build, right? So we need to fi- understand the methods, understand how they did these things, even to the communists back in the day. It's the same tactics that the CIA will use right now, like they're using on the Latin mass. That, sorry, they're, they're, the FBI are now uh, monitoring the Latin mass. They're also, we've got lots of Orthodox priests reporting, being surveil- like surveillance, right? They know that they're being surveilled. So this I- we, we need to also know how to, re- how to stop infiltration, to gatekeep to the left as well, don't we? Yeah, Robert Conquest's second law of politics is any organization that's not explicitly right-wing will eventually become left-wing. And that's really uncomfortable for a lot of people. A lot of people want to build a coalition with the IDW and kind of the, the cast-off left-wing types. And, you know, it's it's fine, guys. You can, you can kind of sit in the back of the bus, but you need to think about what you did and why you ended up here before you try to lead this stuff. It, you have to have a explicit mission for these uh, organizations. And that mission is to create a conservative or right-wing counterculture. That is explicitly the mission. It is not neutral. We're not here to create an equal playing field where everybody gets to play ball. You're either on board with this thing or you're not. And that's how you gatekeep your institutions. If you want to build these new institutions, they must be built from the ground up with the explicit intention of heading towards a vision that is, you know, right-wing and conservatism, those are crass terms for a far more important vision, which is something that's good and true, beautiful and true, right? And, and, and if you don't have those things explicitly laid out and built in, and you're not gatekeeping people out of the organization who don't explicitly share that, then eventually it will be taken over by the very forces that have taken over our current institutions. And even Nietzsche even talked about this, is that you, 
to actually conserve power is not power at all. It has to expand. It has to have a vision somewhere. It has to go somewhere. Or it's, it will naturally, in its, I'm not necessarily Nietzschean, but in its essence, it will d- dissolve. Because it, it, mm. the will, will, or will to power, is fundamentally that. It's the expansion of something. It's going towards something. And we are fundamentally those types of creatures. Is that everything we do is a forward projection. Everything we're doing every day, oh, I'm going to go get the coffee, I'm going to do this, that's always a forward projection. The world appears to us as a forward projection. So that's so important to that. But now we could talk about, too, is that to actually, in America as well, this getting to the ground of this, and you talk a bit about this when you talk about constitutionalism, the sort of worship of the Constitution as a piece of paper. What I feel we need to do is get to the ground of the being of the people who wrote it, the folk being, which is the Anglo-Saxonness. And this is something that has become people have become allergic to saying this word, right? But I feel that it's the deep, the deep uh, soul underneath of of an American is that, and you see this in Appalachia. They rescued the folk tradition for England itself. We had standardized it with uh, broadside ballads, right? And they still had the oral tradition. So we, they saved it for us. So we went, a lot of our uh, academics went over there and recorded all the oral tradition and then brought it back. So there's so many clear examples. And I've got a lot of guys in my membership that are the Virginians. And these guys are all on board on that. Maybe the Northerners are less on board of that. But yeah, this is it. You need the folk being to actually make, like, say you have people turning up to a jury, the common law, these things, that if they don't have the same feeling for what freedom is or what a law might be, then they're going to, uh, like we see with Black Lives Matter people, they're going to uh, say, no, uh, that person's not guilty because they have a different feeling or for what these things mean, right? A constitution isn't a piece of paper. It's a not even propositional. You can't even form it into propositions. And you talk a bit about this in your video essay. I can't remember who the thinker was you talk about, but in my actual analysis of uh, the founding fathers and looking into this, um, that is it's very true. It's about their own being. It's not about uh, the thing on the piece of paper. Yeah, Joseph de Maestra is, is the thinker, and he's talking about the fact that all governments are reflections of the people who create them, you know, they're 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 the embodiment, they're the enshrinement of a set of values, traditions, uh, and ways of being that are already there in the society. It's just the the codification of them formally, and you can't just look at a piece of paper and say this contains all of our traditions and will in perpetuity. You have to further those inside your own community and inside your own society. And if you lose the character of the people. If you lose the values and the culture and the tradition that defined those people, if you change it into something else, then the document doesn't work anymore. So you can have a constitution that has all the values of the founding fathers. But if you've replaced the culture and tradition and ethos of the founding fathers, then the document does nothing at all. And so, yeah, you you have to understand that there's a maintenance of your civilization and its spirits, its essence, its metaphysical manifestation that goes far beyond just recording something on a piece of paper and, and pointing to it in a courtroom. That doesn't do anything. Yeah, and even you, if you worship a piece of paper, that's a problem too. That's the benefit yeah. of having a, a king. I mean, I know this is hard for a lot of some people to 
think about. But if you have a piece of paper, that's a proposition. It's not a symbol. It's not something you can use to mediate who a people is. Whereas when you have a person, just to even say a symbolic spiritual leader, symbolic uh, king, whatever it is, that person can engage with sacred symbols like the, the Spurs of St. George, all the different things he has in his hand, the sword of state. You can use that to actually mediate the way of being if you, if you grab the symbol. But if you have a piece of paper, you have a proposition. A proposition can be so easily manipulated. It's very ephemeral. It can be just, the meaning can be changed, right? And we see them doing this, right, in the, uh, when we don't have in the Supreme Court, whatnot. It's easily removed. Um, I don't, I'm not trying to undermine Americanness here. I just mean that the founding fathers, I have always been more interested in who they were. They mm. called themselves Englishmen before they, the revolution. That was their way of being. What do, we, what do we want? We want to be like the dude, the heroes in their way, not necessarily the propositions they wrote on a piece of paper, which is the surface. That's the last thing. Even the Magna Carta, that's the last thing we get. It's Robin Hood, it's King Arthur, it's all this Shakespeare, it's all this stuff underneath that actually gives form and you finally get that legal proposition at the top, which is the surface layer, right? So, I don't know, what do you do in... I know that you're religious. Do, do you look into this, the folk tradition? Is this something you engage with? I think Warhammer is a great example of actually an emergent <laughs> folk tradition, which I'm a big fan of too, by the way, dude. Because we and it's an enacted, it's an enacted in English, actually Anglo-Saxon folk tradition. You go to the place on Thursday nights to games workshop, as a lot of young kids and guys like myself and you probably as well did on a Thursday. This is a, a folk thing. That is, that's something. Um, but yeah, is this something you engage with, looking for that ground? You can just call it Americana. It doesn't have to be Anglo-Saxon. Whatever you, yeah. Sure. I mean, this is definitely the case in a lot of areas. Obviously, you have those hobbies. You have something like Warhammer or, you know, board game groups, things that I've been a part of uh, for a good chunk of my life. And those are things that are important. You know, people are looking for community. They're looking to find a way to ground themselves. And that's a good starting point if you don't have a deeper tradition, because at least it builds community. It builds some level of ritual. Of course, you want that to expand more. And like you said, I think religion is is a very essential part of that. I, I think it's really inescapable. I think any anybody, even, not everyone is going to be a, the, the most religious person, but I don't think anyone can truly be in contact with their community and a, and a continued way of being uh, if they don't have some level of religiosity. And so I think it is really essential for people to connect in some way um, with Christianity, especially here in, in the West, of course, because these are the, these are the founding principle of Christendom. When we say the West, we just mean Christendom for the most part. And, and uh, so if you want to have any contact with that tradition, you got to start, you know, uh, at the, at the source, uh, hopefully your tradition also builds into things that also weave into your community. Most religious uh, traditions over time build very regional cultural uh, affectations to them, right? And this is why we see Catholicism, for instance, look very different in different places, because while it's a faith, it it changes depending on it, with the reflection of its people, because even though the Christianity, and people attack this, people say, oh, Christianity is this universal thing that, that melts everything. No, Christianity adapts and reflects the people by whom who practice it. And so even though it is a universal religion in the set that, you know, Christ is for everyone, you know, Christ can save anyone. 
the way it's practiced and the way that your community will engage in it is very different than others. And that's a beautiful part of Christianity is that it's able to be practiced by so many different people and they're still able to keep their traditions. They're still able to keep their, their culture. They're still able to keep their way of life. And it's, and that Christianity becomes a reflection of how it's practiced in that context. What came up for me when you just said that is that if you don't have, uh, if you don't have this thing, it, there's a void, a need for religion. If you don't have this, you better pick your tradition and your religion, or you're going to have an enemy egregore, hyper-agent, mm-hmm. possess you. It's the only defense against an enemy egregore, which is what the you know, meaning people on the internet call it, uh, egregore or hyper-agent. It's going to, and you know, you know this community, actually, because you watch Van der Klee. Yes. So, the, the enemy egregore will possess you very easily if you don't have something to defend yourself against it. So that's the first point. But also the other point is, I'm so with you on this, 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 no, it's, yeah, we say universal. No, let's not attack Christianity because we look at the Orthodox. They're the perfect example of this, where each nation has its particular fulfillment. It's like, oh, there's the Russian one. There's the, mm-hmm. right? It's decentralized. It's not this universal, it's got obviously the overarching structure, but as Pajot talks about, I had Pajot on and we talked about this, there's an angel of England or the Anglo-Saxon, there's an, Anglo, an angel of the, this. C.S. Lewis said, each culture has its fulfillment. For England or the Anglo-Saxon, it's Avalon, right? For the Chinese, it's the Tao. So, and that slots into the overarching truth. So, and... That that means that, you know, an African doesn't belong in a certain place. He's got his own fulfillment. That's where he belongs. And here is where we belong, you know, in that sense. And there's nothing wrong with that. doesn't mean we need to globalize and bring people into these countries in which they don't necessarily belong. I'm not 100% against all immigration, but I mean, in that sense, I'm just trying to articulate for people that are always attacking Christianity on this universal grounds that it's Christianity's fault. No, it's actually been the greatest resistance or a great resistance of that. It's actually a very European thing. Like we see this with Kant, we see this uh, with philosophers. They universalize. That's what Heidegger did, what Kant did. They uh, articulate things that they think apply to all uh, cultures. It's just, it's a Faustian way of doing things. It's a yes, attribute yourself right. to everyone. So it's not Christianity, it's Faustian. It's a northern thing to do that. Um, so don't, definitely don't blame Christianity. And if you want the evidence for that, go and look. To these philosophers uh they weren't christian uh and they did it since the dawn of uh, dawn of it right so yeah uh, it has its fulfillment so yeah yeah as we can see from the exporting of wokeness now the the the, the universal expansion is not a is, is not a particular christian uh fulfillment like you said it's something that uh that is very faustian in nature and can can be done with uh many different types of ideologies and this is this only gets more true as we get to the specialization culture, right? Like every, as everyone becomes very particular and everyone trains in a particular discipline or a particular idea, they commit their life to a particular thing. Everything needs to be that thing. It it always Mm. needs to be the grand unifying theory. So if you're a philosopher, philosophy is the key. If you're a scientist, science is key. You know, if you're a mathematician, then math is key. And these things bind the universe together. But of course, we should be avoiding that. We should resist these these single cause explanations or these grand unifying theories. History is 
complicated. You're not a Marxist. <laughs> like history, history has many different facets, many different forces. All of them come together to create something. And if you want a good explanation, if you want a good analysis, you should be bringing many different lenses to bear on a problem, not just forcing the one you're comfortable with. And you see this a lot with people who try to use causation, sort of deduction in history. Oh, it's because Churchill did this or it's because of this. You can't attribute that because you've got all of being. If you attribute to, to being, which we have, we are the void in beings that has being itself, a gift from God. This, 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 where we have, that's knowledge, right? That's epistemology. Nothing else has that. This idea that you attribute to history, it's just this timeline called a timeline. You know, oh, that caused that and that caused that. That's the physical, just looking at the physics of it or just decision. But underneath all that is being itself because we have being. That's constantly informing everything that's happening. So to attribute cause to one event, oh, it was that or it was World War One. So it was this assassination in uh, in uh, where was it in Austria? The assassination that mm-hmm. happened that people all say started World War One. You don't know. It would. Have, it may have just been inevitable in a ter- in, in a certain secular sense, right? So I find this with historians. There is this fallacy of, and that's the, the fallacy of attributing cause. But I think you need to get an overarching view, right? And that's where Spengler is very helpful because he gives you the soul picture, the soul picture of a particular culture, and you can let that inform perhaps why it might be. And think about it probabilistically rather than causally, because probabilistically is you've got certain attractors that are, okay, this was an attractor that may have really given form to how history unfolded. That's a different way of thinking about it. That's a more, uh, uh, yeah, it's just math, probabilistically Bayesian way of thinking about it. It's like, okay, yeah. Yeah, there's always the tension between kind of the Carlylean great man and then the the forces and causes of history. And um, I think, again, the answer is always both, right? Like this is the key. I do think that forces and causes are essential and that in many ways, uh, the spirit of something or a need might inhabit someone and drive them towards something. But at the same time, there are obviously very key actors. There are great men that drive history forward. And in that sense, uh, even if all the conditions are set in a particular way without the person who steps forward into history and and drives that event, maybe the events don't come to the head or, or drive in that direction. Again, I just think it's it's always a resistance to simplicity. It's always multifaceted cause, uh, causes that bring about the events that we're looking at. And, and just discarding one or the other is always a mistake. Yes. So the what I would call the Kyle Island is a sort of... Uh... I call them a super attractor. They are like a, a Kairos moment, right? Is that there's a direction that everything is moving in. And so I'm very on board with that Carlylean great man, man thing. But I, that's kind of anti-causal uh, because there's a whole life in which that guy comes into uh, being and the direction of being. And then as, as uh, um, Spengler articulates is that this is the person that notices where being is going. That notices mm-hmm. the, the ground of everything and sort of connects in, has that flip Kairos moment and the thing happens, right? So I'm much more on board with that because that's not, that's not deduction. That's not causal. That's a sort of, yeah, it's a great attractor. It's like, you know, the theory when, you, when they talk about cosmology, the great attractor of gravity that just cannot be escaped. That is, that is the direction of the culture, but also a, a man that, that aligns with that. So I'm very on board with that. Yep, yep, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So, okay. In terms of, uh, 
let's look at when you look at Yavim and philosophers like Dugan. I wonder whether are we in an age where it can still happen, like with Marx, that someone comes up with a, a theory or a, or a proposition, and this thing can just take fire in a light, or with the because in earlier ages. You could have your own independent magazines and things get sent around, but now we've got the sensors that can put, use technology to censor things. I wonder whether we're in a, we are in an age where that can still happen, where a revolution of ideas can happen like, with Mar- like what, what, what Marx did with his. Can Yarvin do the same thing? Can a Dugan do the same thing? Or are we uh, ever siloed into a certain area? I mean, you've broken, broken containment. You're uh, letting these things reach into a sphere they perhaps couldn't, come into but what do you think about that in terms of the modern technological age is it still possible to have this fire take over well it's a i mean it's a double-edged sword Uh, you obviously have ability to censorship but you also have the ability to avoid censorship for a very long time like you said all of these ideas you know uh, curtis yarvin was writing a blog that you know was not popular that you know it was popular in certain groups but it certainly was not anything that in new york times uh, piece would be written about you wouldn't get vanity fair pieces uh looking at it and now you do and so it's very clear that the you do have the ability to push down on in many senses by the mainstream on the emergence of certain ideas but the thing technology lets you do is continuously share and evolve them no matter what there's always some place where a guy can have a blog there's always a place where people can watch videos or, or send a message and and these ideas can evolve do they have the same access to go viral that something that has mainstream uh respectability does no of course not not even close but as we're seeing like you say you know these ideas yarvin has been on tucker carlson his ideas are not fringe anymore you know each these articles show up in vanity fair you know there there's there's these outlets recognize this and i think the conservative movement recognizes this too this is a movement that for many many years has not been able to answer the questions that its core supporters really are asking it hasn't been able to even speak to many of these issues and trump just smashed that containment like nobody's business whatever you think about donald trump he should always get credit for his ability to just take the old Buchananite message and just shatter it into the media sphere. And now you can talk about immigration. Now you can talk about, you know, tariffs. You can talk about the hollowing out of the middle class. You can explore things that the Republican Party wouldn't have ever touched beforehand. And now these are core issues that the party has to address, even if many people are still dragging their feet. And the same is true, I think, of conservative media. People are realizing, like, yeah, you know, you've still got some of these legacy people who are going to just drag, you know, neoconservatism around till the end of the world. But a lot of people realize that their audiences want something different. And once they get a taste of it, they want more. And so you're seeing a lot more people moving into spheres that otherwise would have never been accessible to them because the the people who are managing them realize like either you kind of bring in this new blood, either you adopt a new way of thinking, or you're going to lose the people who are supposed to be on your side. And that kind of, I, I think... That kind of speaks to elite theory a bit, is that you have a big person, whether I don't know, Kanye or whatever these people that put an issue on the table or Trump, and that just breaks apart. Uh, and so say what you want about Kanye. 
whatever the issue. I'm not talking about the issue itself. Just bring up that allows other <laughs> other things to be spoken about. Allows other mm. things to be spoken about. Whatever. Well, let's not talk about <laughs> that particular thing. But yeah, let let's other people other things be spoken about because of that. And I find also what lays the ground for that is the insanity of the opposition. You have a, you have the insanity of the opposition uh, makes possible that because it becomes so much more plausible to say, well, things are so bad and what's going on that this thing that Jovan's talking about, well, fair enough. We need to look at everything, right? So it's, also, it's an elite thing, but it's also the prepared ground, which is where people like you and all of us have a, have a, uh, a position to play in that is to prepare the ground of things because they need... An elite needs the ammunition. An elite needs vitality. If you don't have the vitality and direction, you don't know where to go. You're just doing it based on maintaining power, which as Nietzsche talks about, is if you're just maintaining something, you're dissolving. You're not expanding, if you agree with Nietzsche anyway. Um, yeah. No, I'm, I'm writing. A, I just got done writing a piece. It'll, it'll probably be out on the blaze, and I'll make a video about it here soon. But yeah, just explaining the concept of the circulation of elites from elite theory. And one of the key parts is that, you know, an elite needs to flow over time. You should you should never have a completely stagnant elite. It should always allow the best and the brightest to, to move into positions. There are, you know, Pareto has these these uh, 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 residues that uh, every ruling class is made up of people with specific skill sets and inclinations. And you should always have an elite that it's adjusting and changing for this over time. It's very clear that we have not done that. We, we've we've calcified our elite. We've we've cut it off. We've closed uh, it to a whole group of very capable people. And whenever you do that, you're going to build up a pressure. You're going to build up a set of counter elites who don't have access to that elite, who don't have the ability to influence their societies, and are looking for ways to do so. And you're going to have the guys. You're going to have an Elon Musk who's like in somewhat in the system, but also bucks. You know, he 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 grinds against the system in certain ways. And they're going to have people who are completely outside of it, but are looking for entrance. And they're going to search for narratives. They're going to search for political formulas that both explain the world around them and would justify their entrance into the elite. And so I think we're seeing right now that that pressure of counter elite build up and these people are looking or they're they're now searching for those narratives. What what explains what's happening and what would explain my ascension into the elite? What would what narrative would would explain to the people why what's happening now isn't good and why we could bring something new, a new vision, something far more exciting and animating to the forefront. I think that that's, it's still early days, but I think that yeah. is what you're saying. And you can't just tack it on top, which you see these, uh, these uh, conservative in name only, but even conservative people that aren't fully on board with where we are, they'll tack, try tack it on top and make it look like that thing. But no, that's not good enough. You have to actually... Uh, fully bring this people in and you see the procedure for this. this is what england did so well before it was completely corrupted it has a whole mythological framework for how that works as you have the yeoman you have this upper upper class whatever it is you have this upper class and you see in the mythology is that robin hood is a populist uprising of a person that's brought into the kingdom because he fights this middle manager sheriff of nottingham that's the managerial elite under the king and the, the king which is the spiritual leader is un- doesn't recognize what's going on. And so he defeats this thing or fights it, and the king re- sees what's going on and brings him into the kingdom. And once mm-hmm. he's been reincorporated, he goes back to the Greenwood, right? So you've got to wait, and you saw, and you see this with the yeoman. What's unique about... Uh, Evola talks about, uh, in Francia, this 
the idea of a true empire is that you don't need to enforce it top down because you've got all these people that have it in their very being. You've got these lords that have the way of being, the way of Francia in their being. They don't need to be enforced. They have the imperium in them, right? In England, it got so good that you had these yeomen who went over and made war against the French, but they imitated the king when they did. They came back and this yeoman class emerges which has these procedures, this way of being. They become freeholders. Those yeomen have that way of being, and then they end up in America, right? That's Thomas Jefferson lifts that up as we want a nation of these yeomen. That true thing is the way of being, though. It's that, that what they ha- that. So we have a ready-made procedure. It's in the mythos. You can see it in Arthur. You can see it in uh, Robin Hood. If we could only look to that, as a, I think you can mine that stuff for what to do now because it it's not so much that it worked back then because it's it's symbolic it can be adapted to modern times it's not uh, a legal procedure that surfaced it's not following what henry the eighth did or whatever it's a, it's a thing that is in anglo-saxon and i would say american being in the unconscious right it suits it it works for it um so i find that if we, the more we can look into that the more possibilities open because you're dealing with a truth that is in being. And if you can make something align with that truth, you've got a pathway. And that's what my work is, basically. What do you think of that? Yeah, you, you, do, you do really have to have a change here because we spent so much time in the modern world deterritorializing everything, taking things out of the realm of the sacred and the spiritual and moving it into the realm of the quantifiable, into the marketplace. And if we don't escape that, then we, you can't, until we escape the idea that you have to put you they have like a 10 point plan on paper that explains what an american is or what an englishman yeah. is or blah blah yeah. blah and once we once we've we've put these points down on paper so everyone can see them we follow the checklist and that's how no you like you said th- these have to be lived things they have to be embodied they have to be you know they have to exist in a way that is not just cold and calculated and programmed and that's hard work it's hard work to build community it takes real effort to weave that cultural fabric back together after it's been torn apart. But that is the task going forward. If if you want to escape this continued idea that we're just going to, you know, get a bunch of bean counters together and they're going to optimize something and that's yeah. going <laughs> to generate the best outcome. You, you have to go to a different way of thinking. And it's really hard for modern people. It's very difficult for us to not just scoff at the at, at many people, you know, you bring up Spangler, you bring up a vol, you bring up people who will invoke this metaphysical idea. They they say, oh well, this isn't proper at all. This doesn't break down into ten little neat compartments that I can put on a cue card. It's like no, that's why it works. That's the beauty of it. And until you can understand that, until you can understand the necessity of embodying that, you're always going to be trapped in this continued disintegration of identity and purpose in your culture. And I think what people make a mistake of is they think that if they have the proposition, they have the description of the 10 points, that they possess it then. Oh, I've got that now. I can just leave. I, I've got, mm-hmm. I, I possess it. No, it's, it's procedural. It's uh, perspectival. These are different ways of n- knowing or knowledge, different ways of knowledge. You need to understand that a tech app is not going to replace it. You can't download an app and have that. That might augment something. That's fine. You can't download an app and, oh, I possess this app now. No, you need to habituate the virtue engine within right and that virtue engine is your habitual practices it builds up a man it builds up a spirit it builds up as you know from christianity it's a life that's embodied it's a thing that's done that 
changes perspective. A cha- if you want to really flip from this utilitarian, gross, usury, this uh, materialism, um, that's what you need to do. It's engaging with the practices, and it won't happen overnight. There's a lot of atheists that are coming into uh, spiritual ways of thinking. So it's a practice. It's a practice. You know, it's not just a proposition. The proposition will only get you so far. So, oh, I believe. Okay, I have accepted it. But that's not, you need the perspectival knowledge. So, I mean, what would you say to people that are sort of walking, that are engaging with this now? What kind of practices that, that helped you? You, perhaps, you were probably always in this life. But I do think it's important to talk about is how to walk people into this way of thinking to escape materialism and utilitarianism. No, it is really essential. For for instance, uh, to your point, the uh, the uh, ten amendments, you know, the Bill of Rights in the United States, the Federalists who weren't initially on board with them opposed them specifically for a very interesting reason because they said writing down the rights might make people think those are the only rights you have. By quantifying them, you might limit the understanding that it's not the document that gives you those rights. You have them. And the documents enumerating them, which again goes back to Demaestra's point. And for people today, you know, who are trying to move, like you said, from the atheist viewpoint to one that is more spiritual, they often have time a hard time escaping that idea. They, they think that they're that they, you also often hear this play. You're just larping it. You're you're just larping it. But of course, larping is the first step to anything becoming real. Yes, hundred percent. Play at something. You mm. go through the action. And then you immediately, eventually find yourself doing it. C.S. Lewis said, I don't, yeah, to, to butcher the quote, it's it's something like, I, d- I don't love my fellow man, but God commands me to love my fellow man. And so I act like I love my fellow man. And funny enough, over enough time, I find myself loving him, right? It, by doing the thing, by embodying, by embodying the form not not simply enumerating it on paper or or securing it somewhere, but by actually acting it out, even if you don't mean it, even if you don't understand it at the beginning, you will become it. It, it will it will be there for you. And and so for anyone who's struggling, and I I totally get. I came from a religious background. I have been a Christian my you know my entire life. Uh, but for people who are coming from a, a difficult place where that seems out of reach for them, I really encourage them act it out. Go anyway, be there, do the thing. And over time, you will find that it does it does become part of who you are. And it's key to think there is this enacted. It's not thinking, I love this person. It's not trying to convince yourself, like, I'm powerful. I'm powerful by saying it to yourself in your head, right? Like that stupid sort of 1980s uh, American beauty, right? Is it power? No, it's enacting. And when you enact a procedure, that's what a character is. That's what a story is, a mapping of a person and a procedure and its outcome. And to a, you're, when you enact something, that again, like I said earlier, it's a building of this virtue. A Christian virtue is built from the enacting of something. Acting as if is acting. It's the, it's the procedure. And that builds up this perspectival knowledge in cognitive science terms. You, the, way, the way the world worlds to you changes based on how you enact something. So that's so important. The other thing, and I half mentioned it earlier, is that it's really important to recognize that these knowledges, transcendent truths, are not formal, right? You can't, so when people write them as a proposition, that's only ever a description. And you know a lot of this stuff. You know a lot of this stuff anyway, right? Because you watch Van der and stuff. But it is important to remind people is that you have to engage the practice to actually see the perspectival shift. You don't get it until you've done it. 
right? Uh, and that, yeah, it's just people always, we always go back to this, oh, I've got it. I've got the proposition. I've got the what. I've got the how. Yeah. Yeah, no, you see this all the time. I hear this so often from people. Oh, I've learned the lessons. I understand, uh, for instance, uh, you know, Yarvin's or Elite Theory's thinking. I, I get it. Okay, what are you doing about it? Nothing. How are you? How are you enacting it? Not at all. Like it, it, it's you haven't internalized any of the actual lessons. You just saw the knowledge on paper, evaluated it, and then moved on. You know, there, there's a, and uh, you know that, that's a much more crass example than a than a religious example. But but you you know, in either way, simply hearing something or, or looking at it is far different than you know. A lot of people right now, you see this from a lot of. Uh, the 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 much more respectable right they uh do these hit pieces on people like uh, uh rag nationalists right saying oh this is this is purely uh fashion it's purely uh, the selling of a lifestyle it's a it's a fad uh it, they don't understand that it's a much deeper thing that actually people's being changes when they see themselves and approach things differently when you're conscious about taking care of yourself working out you know th- these kind of things it changes the way you think. It changes the way you approach life. In fact, it's far more compelling than, you know, the idea, than just getting these ideas on a sheet of paper, which is why far more people become conservative when they have children than come become conservative because they heard a Ronald Reagan speech somewhere, right? It, it, it's ac- the actual embodied, embodied living of a truth brings them to a political conclusion. The political science doesn't bring them to the embodiment of the truth. And the world manifests itself based on possibility. It's all projected out there. That's the possible. If you start weightlifting, if you start uh, eating well and chugging raw eggs, all that stuff gives form to how perspective manifests itself. And me and raw egg talked about this, Marlu Ponte. It's, it's all embodied changes the perspective, right? This is Mishima. This is, you know, a lot of people on our side uh, are reading these books and understanding that now is that, is that you embody something, you build something. And this is a thing, this, this, uh, it's so beyond what Peterson talked about with, you know, your room. It's no, it's, it's really, that is really compelling life to be a part of that, to actually think, oh, I can do these things and actually have this uh, transformation. It doesn't have to be a massive thing. It's a small thing. And over time, simple thing um but everyone can do something i we just saw with the uh, world economic forum posted some stupid post saying oh psychologists just said that you don't necessarily need me life doesn't necessarily need meaning life doesn't necessarily need to be this right but it, there's so many i you know it's crazy it's so many simple things because they can't provide it there's so many simple things that you that, that lead to that Everyone can have it. So it's just almost crazy that the World Economic Forum would say such a thing, but it makes sense based on their vision, which will mean you can't have anything. To have men building themselves into something more is dangerous to them. To male, male vitality is dangerous to them. Male fraternity is dangerous to them. Yeah, it's almost impossible at this point to tell the like uh, the parody posts from the World Economic Forum from the real posts. So I can never tell when I see one of those whether it's it's legitimate at this point. But it's absolutely true. You know, the managerial elite, their their ruling formula, their political formula comes from the ability to homogenize and make everyone dependent on the Leviathan. Right. They they need to have every moment of your life managed and controlled to expand the power of managers. 
And so there's a real effort to make sure that no one has that kind of independence that comes from being animated by by a specific metaphysic, by a specific spirit, by a specific way of being, because those ways of beings are particular and moral particularities and cultural particularities are a real problem when you want to operate mass systems. If you want to operate a bureaucracy that can encompass an entire nation or an entire world, you really need to erode the differences between the people groups that you're managing so that your application of systems can be reliable. And so the, the ability of people to individuate and to create particularities is a very big issue. And that's why guys like the WEF, who I don't think I have a lot of power in of itself, it's more of a mouthpiece of power. Um, I don't think anything gets decided at the WEF. I think people who are powerful go to the WEF and make announcements about things they've decided. But the the either way, the point is that, of course, it's in their interest to make you not care about meaning because meaning is derived not from some kind of universal gray goo, but by a particular inhabited way of being. And they can't provide that to you. In fact, not only can they not provide it, they sp- explicitly must destroy it for their political formula to, to prosper. And also it's embedded in nation. And this is what people like that offer, a, even Viveki, is what they can't give us, a Viveki, John Viveki, even a van der Klee. Van der Klee does get a bit close to this, certainly not a Peterson, with this classical liberal worldview, is that you're embedded in a nation. That, where that walks up to the church, that's what gets you in, inside it. That's falling away, the folk, or that, that authentic being underneath. And what people like Raw Egg, uh, even mentioning recently, is that we've already got a solution to this. It's nationalism. He just posted about this, is that we don't need more talks, Peterson. And yes, uh, you've even t- said this before, is that yes, Peterson's helped a lot of people. I agree. Uh, all that clean room stuff, it's all great. I've studied him in deep detail and his thesis. I like his early anthropology. That's the thing I really like, his maps and meaning book. But mm-hmm. that's the thing, is that we have to get outside this classical liberal worldview, also thinking that we can talk the enemy to death, which you talk about. You can't talk the enemy to death. They've got their own hermeneutic. They're not interested in your truth. They've got their own truth. They don't care. You're not beating them. So you have these people having these conferences, these gate-kept conferences to talk about this stuff. When you've got, and that, we've got people like Raw Egg, we've got, that have a solution to this. Like, what do you do about that? Like, what do you do about, well, I guess you talk about it. But what do you think about that? Is that they're, they're trying to find some classically liberal solution, have their conferences, then they're not willing to invite someone like a raw egg to these conferences. Will that change? I don't know. I think it is changing. I mean, they just had the, uh, the, the what was the name of it? Like the National Conservatism Conference. I'm trying to remember. Is it the, some kind of national? Is yeah, it, that your um, NADCON. person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Herzoni, I believe, is his conference. But they invited people like Paul Gottfried. You know, who has been untouchable for the uh, good chunk of the the conservative movement for a very long time. Like I said, I think there is a realization that there has to be more, you know, and 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 there there has to be more for conserve for for the right. This stock standard conservatism just isn't getting the job done. And I do think that guys like Peterson, for all of their faults, did open that door in a in a big way. Actually, I don't think I would be anywhere, you know, and I, I disagree with Peterson on a lot. I, I've been been very clear about that, but I wouldn't be where I was without Peterson. I wouldn't have understood the importance of of meaning and 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 the transcendent quite in the way that I do now if it wasn't for him. So I think you know credit where it's due, but at the same time, you are right that there's there's clearly a gatekeeping 
effort underway. You know, I am, I, you know, when, when someone's calling Jordan Peterson a Nazi, then, you know, that's as far right as you can go. Cause obviously like Nazis are bad. Right. And so, you know, anything to Jordan Peterson's right must be really crazy. Right. And there's a, there's a lot of that kind of talk, but I think the truth is that there does need to be a dialogue between the right and its vanguard. And I think it's happening. I think we're seeing it pretty consistently now. There's still there's still routine gatekeeping efforts, but I think they're failing on a pretty regular basis. Again, we just saw we just saw the you know, I'm gonna wrote I'm gonna just gonna reference this a million times, but Lomez and first things, there was an immediate rush for all these people who are supposed to be pushing the edge of the conservative movement, suddenly saying, whoa, whoa, we can't have some anonymous guy talking about this in our Catholic magazine. And you know what I saw? saw instead of a bunch of people nodding their head along with the ghost the guys a lot of people saying what are you talking about i respected you and now you're pushing back against this guy who's saying something entirely reasonable why are you doing that and so i think you are seeing kind of a breaking of that containment because the, the, the those classic attempts are just not working anymore the way they used to and maybe we need to keep as part of it's our pressure to keep we keep saying gatekeeping 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 and our audiences are grow grow Right. I think that obviously has an effect because you see with this national conservatism, they having a London conference soon. I'm just wondering, where's Carl Benjamin's invite? Where's academic agent? Why aren't they invited Yoram to speak at this? I mean, I understand that he's I just feel there's a sort of subtle containment with that national conservatism thing as well, because, I mean, Carl Benjamin's a very big figure. And so, and so is academic agent in this movement. Like, why have they not been invited to this in London? It's weird. Sure. But like I said, Paul Gottfried is it was a pretty big invite for them. So, so like he, I, Paul Gottfried was far more out there than Carl Benjamin, all respect to Carl. And so um, I, I think that is actually a, a pretty big reach and they should, I think in many ways, this is also um, a respectability thing, right? Uh, Carl, Carl Benjamin and of course, academic agent are very intelligent people with a lot of very important things to say, but they, even though like academic agent is actually a credentialed professor, they don't, they don't run in the right crowd, right? They didn't build, they didn't build their audience by going to think tank conferences and publishing in respected journals. And a lot of these conferences are focused on that. They, they, it does, you are seeing a lot of these think tanks. You are seeing the Claremont Institute publish guys like Raw Egg Nationalist or me who didn't come out of, out of that. So there is some more openness now, but there is still a stodgy, like, you know, nah, but you don't smell right. You know, you, you didn't come through the, you, you don't have the right prep school on your record, you know, you know. and uh, there is going to have to be, I think, uh, a coming to terms with the fact that these people that they're trying to discount because, you know, you saw this with Peter Hitchens and Carl, uh, right? You know, you, oh, you know, you're the guy from the internet who said the bad thing, so I don't have to take you seriously. But actually, Carl has grown significantly, and you really should take him seriously because he's a very different person with a very different uh, message than, you know, what Peter's thinking about. But if you if you came from that world, if you started on YouTube or Twitter or something, as opposed to, you know, the right finishing school, then maybe you don't get the invites you should. But also, I think, too, is that what the Internet does open is that I worry about this because I've got a shit posty side, but I'm very serious in my right. I want to be able to do both. But you do see figures like Jay Dyer who have managed to have now people re- recognize him as, oh, this is a serious lay theologian and philosopher, but also a shit posty comedian. So my hope is with people like that, they're allowed to do that because someone like Michael Milliman, which you probably know, Michael Milliman, a mm-hmm. political philosopher, yep. he, he uh, posted sort of recently that, oh, I hope people 
that see some of my shit posted tweets don't think I'm not serious, right? So obviously there's a ground worry in our area, right wingness that, and I feel the same thing. I feel the pressure. I really want to be able to do that, but I don't want that. But I feel maybe that's the problem of the sort of credentialed, stodgy. That's the enforcement mechanism. Is that so, in some sense the enforcement mechanism that keeps us from saying the, the, the truth to be able to have a bit, you know, bit of fun? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And but that's a really interesting thing that's happened. That's why, you know, my path has been so weird. I started making memes on Twitter. You know, that that that's what I did. I wasn't writing complicated theories and putting out books and and you know, I I, I was doing more complicated work on my YouTube channel. But at the t- the the thing that drew my audience at first was me making memes, right? And and now I get to do far more complicated work and talk to, uh, you know, people in very rarefied air. Well, I mean, I'm wearing a Metallica shirt, man. Like, you know, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. You know, Talk, talking but, about political theory and, right, and kings right, yeah. and yeah, a striper yeah. album behind my wall. <laughs> and, and some then, em- and, the photo of the emperor, you know, from right, Warhammer. Yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. And but then I get to talk to really significant people about, you know, elite theory and all kinds of complicated stuff. I think the big thing is we got to understand that uh, the, the what allowed this discussion in the first place was that shit posty style, was that trolley style, was the the um, a more aggressive, more uh, willing willing to transgress. Um, that's more the word I was looking for. That more transgressive style, and then that's what opened the door to have far more complicated conversations, which is why so many of the people who try to gatekeep anons end up looking so stupid because they come in to gatekeep the shitposting, but then they end up slamming face first into a wall of really good and relevant points that actually sound very cogent to people who have been looking for something new. And so I think the key moving forward is just don't be cowed. Don't, don't, don't you, you, can play on these fields. You you can post and be uh, transgressive and push the conversation while also having a respectable understanding of what's going on and being able to make cogent arguments that 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 shift things. But it is that you have to you have to open the door with the memes before you can deliver with a more complicated theory. And people don't like that because they don't, the, the stodgy class, they don't know how to use memes. They don't know how to use meme warfare. So of course they're, of course they're trying to gatekeep it. They don't understand it, but it's essential to kind of get in the door before you can then deliver the more intellectual stuff. And I suppose another thing is too, is that with a genre mashing, because it is a kind of genre mashing of serious and, and this is also, if you're shit posting and you're wearing a suit and you've got the background that I've got, that kind of helps say, well, there's a mixed tone here. Maybe this, yeah, right, you can ship post and do both. Uh, so I think that's another thing people need to think about. Um, and if you've got a reputation, you're just setting up a ground for both. So you're posting serious articles and you've got the shit posting memes. People are going to get that you're a, you're a dual, you're a dual. And this is what plagued me. And, and, and so I finally come to this view is that no, you can do both. You can do both. You're just setting up your reputation for both, right? So for anyone out there that's thinking, oh, I better not. Well, establish both. And I think you'll be okay. You'll be okay. It's like setting up two genres. It's like being in Hollywood, which I've got some experience with. It's like, having being uh oh i can make thrillers but i can also make horror and that's what a director does they have an establishment reputation for both right so well and the key line through everything is truth Mm. you know if the if the memes are speaking to something very truthful and something that's powerful 
then even though they're jokes, even though they're they're uh, on one level a, a low resolution version of what you're saying, it's not that hard to then upscale it to a much higher resolution once you get the opportunity to actually explain. So so don't post memes just to post memes. If you're worried about that, post the truth. And if the truth is a meme, then then post the meme. And if the truth is a complicated dissertation, then do that too. But the, the through line is is delivering something that's potent and speaks to people in a way that they wouldn't have otherwise been able to understand something. And if it's if it comes in an image, then that's how it comes. And if it comes in a complicated podcast or or a article or a book, then that's how it comes as well. But always deliver something that's speaking truth and, and uncovering something meaningful to people. And I think you'll be fine. Yeah. And the, the core of truth is that you're opening something that people have inarticulate in their own being. That's why it works when you articulate a truth. It's because they go, oh, yeah, right? They don't have the proposition, but you give them the proposition which is connected to their perspective, and they see. So they have it there inarticulate. But for you, right, what you do with your – you've done this for quite a while now. It's quite a masculine thing. It's, and you may not see it as heroic, but when you're acting out like that, you're posting these things, this draws attacks. You might may have already had a conservative base of friends, of chads, whatever, in your network. But have you seen blowback from what you're doing? Uh, when you, I mean, I, when you, I know that you journalistically were always of this uh, conservatism, but surely now you're, you're coming under attack a lot more. Has that blown back on your family at all or anything like that? No, yet? no, not really. I, I mean, I'm very lucky in that I came, like I said, from a religious tradition and background, very naturally conservative. We didn't we didn't talk a lot about politics at the dinner table. No one announced that we were diehard Republicans or something. It was just the natural uh, assumption coming from our our background and tradition. And so it hasn't really had. An, I don't have like that family members that's the radical liberal that won't talk to me at at uh, you know Thanksgiving or something now. Because everyone in my life, even if they didn't agree with me, and there are plenty of people who don't, the, the friends and such who who disagreed with me knew who I was. And we we built a relationship around already knowing kind of where I stood. And so nothing about this was shocking for many of my liberal friends. Finding out what I do now is just like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Makes you know? sense. <laughs> yeah. Aligns yeah, with this whole destiny, with this whole. Yeah. It's a, right. This is the same guy I've known you know, uh, for, for many years, he's just got a job saying the things he was saying to me. And so I, I haven't really had uh, a, a big shift. I know a lot of people lost friends and family with, you know, COVID divided them and then that kind of thing. But I was very lucky in that, like I said, the, you know, I already had a very pretty conservative community around me and those who weren't that we, we knew where we stood. It wasn't a problem. And sort of aligning with destiny, really, this seems like it's been just uh, unfolding for you. You already had a competence in what you were already doing. It's just unfolded rather than having a big inciting event when, where you went, ah, this is my destiny for what I'm doing. You already were a journalist. You sort of went like this, right? Rather than boom, bang. Yeah, I mean, uh, I have no other explanation other than uh, God will <laughs> send you where he's going to send you. I, I mean, I did have a background as a journalist, it's true, but I didn't I didn't go to journalism school. I didn't have any prior experience as a journalist before I became a journalist. Literally, my friend was the sports reporter for a local newspaper, and they lost the guy who covered politics in local politics in the area, and he didn't want to go to these boring government meetings and cover them anymore. And so he's like, Hey, I've seen you write something about politics. Will you try this out for me? And I started doing freelance journalism for the paper so that he didn't have to go to these meetings anymore. 
and that's how I became a journalist. And so while it does now in hindsight, you can be like, oh, all these things line up and that makes perfect sense. And it's at the time, it's like, no, that made no sense at all. I had no experience. I, I didn't even particularly enjoy writing uh, you know, when I was young or anything like that, no, no one would have been like, oh yeah, this guy, he's going to be a writer, or a speaker or something when he grows up. That was just not, that was not where I was at, but it is something that through just confluence of events, I, I moved towards and built the skill set for. And, and again, even then I'm, I was still very surprised. I thought I was just going to run a YouTube channel and I had a Twitter that was going to post some of my YouTube videos. I didn't, it never occurred to me that Twitter might be the thing that that grew my audience or my platform and allowed me to do all these things. So you just never know. It's you, you, you put the things out of the world and then, you know, yeah, that's key. where you're going to go. Yeah. That's key to everyone who might be watching. They want to do the same thing is you have to take the risk. You have to mm -hmm. start throwing it out. You'll get better as you go as well. So the first one yes. might not be great, but you just don't keep thinking about that. Oh, I can't, you know, just keep throwing it out and proving as you go. McKinnis talks about this as well as that there's different, there's the film way of doing things, which is very like you're working on something until it's just, perfect whatever but no in terms of social media on youtube it's it's just keep improving and keep uh keep posting right keep doing and then it'll it'll get better over time also conviction you need a real obsession develop an obsession where you just craft you okay craft 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 you don't wait till you're passionate about something to write about it you do it like a, a workman right at, at, at the mill who, ch who puts his time card away and clonk clonk and that's what you obviously learned early on that uh yeah no that's that's 100 the case uh you'd be amazed how many times you sit down and you're like all right i have to write something and you're the whole time you're writing it you're like this is not what i wanted i don't know what this is blah blah blah, blah. and then you hand it in and someone's like this is the most amazing thing yeah like, what <laughs> you yeah know? yeah but but it, it didn't seem like the first time because you're still processing and people ask me you know how how do you go about stuff like this like uh you're trying to read a book i don't know, I don't know if you remember that book that book uh, a week lex friedman list that everyone was dunk dunking <laughs> yeah. on you know yes but, but yeah. like I tell people, you know, read something, read it really slowly, read it multiple times, take notes, and then at the end, write a summary like you're trying to explain the idea to someone. That's how you start mastering that level of knowledge. And if you want to start, you know, if you're writing fiction or any of these things, it really is posters post. That's all there is to it. Like you get the reps in and you learn and you adapt and you grow. There is just no substitute for making something put out in the world, tell, having someone tell you it sucks and then getting better at it. There's just no escape from that cycle. So the best thing to do is to get started. And I would also say is that get in front of camera, get in front of camera, because a lot of this world, and I've been in it, it's about ex the middlemen exploiting people. And a lot of the times writers can, could get exploited because they don't get in front of camera. Right. Because you can when you're sort of hidden, you work for a publication, you have a little shot of your face thing there. But still, the publication has the writing. But when it's you and then you're suddenly putting out the essay on YouTube, it's so easy just to be on camera and just read it out. Is that no one can claim your work then. No one. It's just you in front of it. I, I really believe we're entering the age of orators is that writing is really about thinking. Right. It's about the writing then becomes the thing that brings your thinking together. Of course, the propositions are very important because it's the same as speaking. It's the same as that. But the end format, a lot of the time, is I most of your stuff. Some people, a lot of people read as well, but uh, and you should do both. But I'll watch you rather than read you. I prefer to watch uh, Oram. Right. So I think it's so important that writers acknowledge that is that. Yeah. 
No, it's very true. I actually, all of my, up until, you know, uh, a little bit ago, all my stuff was, uh, was dictated off of notes. I didn't, I didn't actually write scripts. I didn't, I didn't script the whole thing. Um, it's only when I started writing for publications and stuff that I actually had to go back and like reconstitute a lot of my oration into, into essays. Um, but it, but it is very much the case that getting on camera is a different thing. I, I started completely off camera. Of course, I like, you know, I, I didn't have a, uh, my face out there or anything. So that has, that's definitely been an adjustment as well, but I was always speaking. I was always, my, my main delivery was always through my voice. And so I did have that level of practice, which I think it does help separate you. And, and, and so I never had that, ex you know, I had that experience as a journalist, obviously, where I was just a name on a, on a byline and, and everyone knew the actual paper, but, uh, but all of my public work and, in, in you know, what I do now has always been kind of my, on my own platforms. And so I didn't, I never had that point where I was like, just one guy writing for, you know, National Review or something. Not the National Review would have put me on. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, we're breaking the breaking it down. We'll see. Yeah. But um, yeah, 100%. I think improv is a good practice if people are looking to get into that because that really gets you uh, able to, in real time, gets you comfortable with real time. Yeah, improv, improvising. It gets you good at improvising. So that's another thing people can do with that. For you, did you, do you, is, there's a big attack on masculinity at the moment. We're, we're getting towards the end, by the way, so you probably have to go soon. But um, yeah. these are the last questions, so don't worry. Sure, no problem. But but um, masculinity has been under attack for a long time. Is that patriarchal leadership is a big part of traditional Christianity? So is that an important part of your life? Do you are you have you do you have any men's clubs or do you are your I don't know is that a part of your existence that having a strong masculine base that helped you? do what you do because if you didn't you'd have that sort of longhouse attack on you that sort of yeah. immune response when you started doing what you're doing you must even implicitly have a sort of patriarchal thing that defends you from a, a longhouse attack yeah. I, I think a big part of it was uh was taking up uh martial arts and, and weightlifting um when i was young. I was not a particularly masculine guy. You know, I, was, I didn't didn't have a lot of sports or something I participated in. But when I hit college, I really started lifting weights. Uh, I had a friend who dragged me to the gym, and once I was in the gym all the time, I was like, okay, I've built this strength, but I want to do something with it. And so I started watching, you know, MMA and stuff, and I started picking up, you know, jujitsu and Muay Thai and stuff. And I'm not a savant or anything, but like there is something very serious that transforms in your being when you are in physical simulated combat. There's just nothing. It's, it's hard to describe to people who don't get it. There, again, you know, there, there's this back and forth, I think between like some, some national review guy and, and, and <laughs> nationalists right now. And they're like, Oh, it's so stupid that you should, you should understand that I'm, I'm this, you know, lazy guy who never goes to the gym and I don't get it at all. It's like, yeah, of course you don't. Cause you, you haven't put yourself, you haven't inhabited that moment, but like, but being in, in a, in a situation where you're, you're getting choked out or you're choking someone out and you have to say, okay, you could have killed me there. Or someone saying, okay, you could have killed me there. And I gave up it means something, it builds something. You, you build a level of confidence and you build a level of command uh, that is just unattainable uh, otherwise. And it doesn't have to be 
you know, martial arts, there, there are other very masculine pursuits you could do. But for me, if I was going to point to like one thing that really shifted my perspective and built confidence in, in that it is just going through that. And, you know, you, you're doing judo, you're doing jujitsu, you're, you're throwing someone, you're pushing uh, and pulling bodies. And you, you know, that you can, you can best someone in a physical combat situation. You, you know, that you have the confidence to do that even if it's not something you're going to use, you live in a relatively safe area or something, it's still just building that competence will of course then put you in contact, of course, also with a community of men who also have that, you know, who also feel that masculinity also have that camaraderie camaraderie, and that will then lead you to do things that, you know, it doesn't seem immediately applicable to talking about ideas or writing essays, but it does, it comes through. It does, that confidence does transfer and uh, and building that competence is key. Your world again. This is again the world perspective changes, and people. Here's a pretty practical understanding: is when you have some sort of lifting uh, tension between someone, it's always in the background there that you're competent physically to fight someone, right? Even when you need to confront someone, the flaw of where you'll shake or or feel anxious or have this adrenal it's adrenal control, right? So. And I can tell you, before I've done such things, I'd have that. You, you, I'm very disagreeable, so I, I will definitely confront people. But even doing that without training, before training, I'd still have that, oh, and you might start moving a bit. And that's emba- embarrassing, whatever, because you're there for a... So it gives you the possibility and potential to be able to direct, just confront someone and stop something before it goes out of control. You're lifting the floor of something to be... It's just a possibility for you. And it won't allow you to cuck out and be weak in an argument or a debate where it needs to be confronted or even to defend your family. And that's not just necessarily about whether it's going to be physical or not. It may get there, but you've always got that possibility and potential where you know you're competent. You're not deluded. You know what a physical engagement is, right? So that's key for people to understand is that it informs all your non-physical combat stuff as well. So important to do. Yeah, rather than increasing your likelihood of escalation, it actually decreases it because you don't feel that need to panic. You don't feel that need to puff up and uh, do something because you can project the confidence directly. You don't you don't need to suddenly overreact and send a situation because you communicate your competence naturally to the other person, the other party. And again, that could be physically, but it could just be in a in a verbal, you know, uh, just talking online. You don't need to panic when someone pins you down on an issue or something because you're like, I've been here before. I've been, you know, people have, have choked me out before. I can I can handle this. This is not a big deal. Someone disagreeing with me that means I can keep my cool. I can keep my calm. I can collect myself. I can maneuver and I can do. You build again. It's just it it touches every part of your life. It's not just physical conflict, though that is obviously a part of it. It, it really does increase your ability to command yourself and control yourself and feel confidence in your ability to, to execute something in pretty much every arena. Yeah. I mean, there's so much good stuff there of all we've spoken about today. I think there's heaps of pe- things that people can use to enact. And right. It's great. Uh, so great um, having you on, man. Is there anything else you want to bring up or say before we come to a, to a close on this? No, I think we're we're all over the place, but in a yeah. great way. So I'm no, it's great. To it's, talk about that's what topics. we wanted. Yeah, no. Oh yeah. no, we did get to some of them. The ones that we mentioned, we definitely did. Oh sure, absolutely. It's, yeah, it's been a great dialogue, man. Um, people will love it. That's the kind of format I like. Is just let it unfold into wherever it goes. 